welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything Deep Sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me, as ever, is Dr. Alan J. Oh, oh, Dr. Alan is evolving into Professor Jameson. Congratulations, mate. I don't think it's an evolution. I think it's more of a mutation, but thank you. You're a fine Pokemon. But from now on, I want you to refer to me as the Professor. Nice. I don't think it's too much to ask. No, no, you're very humble. Very humble. But congratulations, mate. That's a... Thanks. I mean, I don't want to brag about it, but if you can call me the Professor at all times, that'd be much appreciated. Fair enough. Okay. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, a mere mere doctor, but with me is the Professor. Thank you. It's a pleasure (laughs) to be here, as always. Right, so what's been going on in the news recently? Uh, it's actually been a busy one, it feels. It feels like lots of stuff is going on. So the first thing that caught my eye was life being found below the ice. So for the first time, uh, life has been found on a hard substrate below sea ice. So in the poles, in the Arctic and the Antarctic, it's a bit of a boom and bust. There's continual sunlight in the summer, so you end up with loads of growth and food is plentiful in the summer, but then you get those those long nights, that perpetual darkness, which means that there's a, a lack of food in the in the winter. So the, the animals not only have to be cold adapted, but there's real oscillations in how much energy is being delivered to their environment. Under ice, under thick ice at least, there there isn't really primary production. There isn't really new food being created. And the theory was that the further you get from the edge of the ice, the further you get from uh, open water the less abundant life will be as you're getting further and further away from where the, the food is created. And large mobile animals had been observed before, things like seals and fish, uh, up to 700 kilometers under the ice. Compare that with, the say, the deep sea, you know, that's, that's a lot further away from primary production horizontally than we sort of talk about things down, basically. And, you know, sinking particles, they're, they're all heading down. But these animals are found way, way under the ice. So it was found on a boulder, a glacial dropstone, at just over 1,200 metres. And they were static, sessile organisms, so things that actually grow on a hard surface like sponges and things like that. And it was 260 kilometres under the ice, but it was actually from 625 to 15,000 kilometres from the nearest photosynthesis, from the nearest primary production. Wow. I know, I know, that's incredible. It was the the currents carrying it, but it's still a very long way from where there's new food being created. They're mostly suspension feeders, so things with filters that capture particles within the water. Uh, And they were only on the sides of the boulder. There was no signs of life on the sediment or on the top of the boulder where the sediment had started to collect. And most were stalked, which is something we quite often see where they'll try and move their feeding apparatus up into the water, up into the flow, away from the boundary layer around the the boulder where the, the current will be sort of slowed down. So that's how we can tell that they're, they're obviously feeding on things in the current because they, they want to get their filters out away from the, the rock that they're growing on. And morbidly, they'll be eventually smothered. So eventually there'll be enough material rained down on that boulder that it will get, it will get buried and, uh, and that community will be lost, which reminded me a little bit of the, remember the pumice we saw, Alan, off New yeah. Zealand? Volcanic eruptions have created these little floating pumice stones, about the sort of size of a football, but I'm sure there was bigger ones that broke up. And it would just get colonised by barnacles, by the big stalked goose barnacles. And even crab larvae would settle on it. And, and weirdly, it wasn't, uh, the one we found at least, wasn't like a swimming crab. It, it just picked this tiny little world to live on. And it couldn't leave once it had metamorphosed into an adult crab. Uh, and eventually, the pumice will break up or so many animals will start to grow on it that it sinks. And so that whole little microcosm, that little world, will 
sink away into the darkness and uh, and be lost. A bit grim, that. Yeah, you've you got to pick your houses carefully. <laughs> don't move in, don't let my foes. A lesser known fact about the uh, the under ice story. Oh, uh, I used to know that guy. I was at his birthday party in Cambridge in 2006. There you go. Wow. Top trivia for you. Was it a good party? It was. Actually, it was really messy. Oh, good. There we go. The Atlantic Current was slowing. Did you see that piece? Yeah. Those are always not good pieces to read. That, oh. that, that, that's when you know that there's something going on that you can't stop. <laughs> that's a, a feeling of helplessness and futility. Like you just get driven home when you hear these stories about the Gulf Stream's about to die, and you're like, oh, well, it was great when it lasted. This this is my my total nightmare that we were talking about on a on a previous episode of the circulation to the deep sea stopping and the deep sea suffocating, and then that being it. But, of course, such a massive issue is going to have huge problems for us as well. Like, I mean, the extreme weather that's going on right now as well. Those currents are great for, like, averaging the, the climate. I think you just leave it at that. Those currents are great. Make Big the Gulf Stream great again. <laughs> MTGSGA. That's quite catchy. Not quite as good as MAGA, but... Nah, it's a bit more niche, maybe. But uh, no, I like but we that. We should have a campaign of Make the Gulf Stream Great Again. Oh, so that's, that's nice and grim. So we've got the pumice spiralling down into the darkness, and now we've got us, our planetary pumice maybe spiralling down into the darkness. Do you think that's what Earth is? It's just a, it's an interstellar piece of pumice, which is temporarily being overpopulated, and it's the overpopulation that will eventually lead to its demise. It's a good analogy, <sighs> isn't it? All life is fleeting, all systems are unstable, on any scale, we're just a, a little flash of light in an infinite darkness. But do you know what we need to do, Tom? What? We need to make the Gulf Stream great again. We do, we do. I like that positivity. I like that sort of, yeah, come on. Yeah, just remember MTGSGA. Rolls off the tongue. (laughs) (laughs) You just sort of rattled something off on the last episode that that really stuck with me. Um, Turning the lights on in the vampire department is a a line of poetry. You said that? You said that. When, it, when you're it? making fun of me for being a perv and, and looking at how vampire squid reproduce. So yeah, that's going yeah, on that's the quite, merch That's as quite well. good, isn't it? I don't, I don't, I don't remember that. So, oh, actually, well, we're, we're on the air and people are, are listening. How did Vampire Squid Day go? 14th. Your Vampire Squid themed Valentine's Day. It was a nightmare. Because the, <laughs> the toddler had other ideas. Not a big fan of the Vampire Squid then? Not, not a big fan of, of parents having time to themselves or any joy or happiness which isn't directly funneled towards him. Uh, yeah. Uh, but someone has been turning the lights on in the vampire department, and there's been some interesting fossils found of vampire squid. Like right now, they're they're adapted to low oxygen conditions at sort of bathyal depths, just over a couple of hundred meters. But in the Mesozoic, they were a shelf species, or a shelf group even, uh, and so they were found a lot shallower. And there was a massive gap between those two in the fossil record, but they reckon they found one to sort of bridge that gap, and are hypothesizing that developing a tolerance to low oxygen allowed them to colonise deeper into the deep sea and it allowed them to survive the mass anoxic events. The things I'm scared about, basically, about these currents stopping and the, the deep sea suffocating, in evolutionary history, there's a few species that seem to have this low oxygen tolerance and it might be a, a hangover from that time. So we now know hmm. a little bit more about the vampire squids. Lots of good vampire squid research going on. Yeah, quite right. And then finally, there was a really... Well, quite an unusual paper making a case for plastic waste as a biodiversity hotspot. Essentially an artificial reef, as it adds a habitat that wouldn't normally be there. And of course, things will take advantage of that and grow on that. High diversity on litter, but... Yeah, I read that. Our previous comments about, like, you know, just sinking something that's essentially litter and calling it an artificial reef. 
and where where does that line lie? Because essentially, you know, they're making a they're making a valid point. It offers a a complex three D substrate that doesn't shift like sand does, and so things can grow on it. Yeah, I think the plastic bits are relevant. It's just hard substrate, isn't it? You could go to an ammunition dump offshore, and and you wouldn't class ammunition as being a habitat type, but the fact that most of it is boobs like metal shells and stuff like that is just a hard substrate. So I'm not I'm not sure we should be at the point of classifying plastic litter as a new type of marine habitat. It was a wild punt. It's good to have these conversations, I guess, and to sort of take a moment to think about whether that's right or wrong. You've introduced something hard onto a soft sediment environment and then things that would normally not be able to settle on soft sediments suddenly have something to hold on to. Well, it's like those goose barnacles you're talking about. We say that invasive species are bad, but if you are the invasive species, you'd be like, what? Yeah. You know, historically, a goose barnacle grabs on a bit of pumice and it's only got a, well, I don't know, let's just make up some numbers, a hundred kilometre range. And then suddenly it finds itself on a plastic bottle. It's like, woohoo, I'm all the way to Antarctica. And we're like, this is terrible, this is terrible. Invasive species are getting further and further. But if you're the goose barnacle, you're like, I've never been to Antarctica before. This is actually quite nice. <laughs> There's a fantastic irony to the human race arguing that other species are sort of alien and invading habitats where they're yeah. not meant to be. I feel an element of hypocrisy there. Because everything's just trying to survive. And if you land on an island where all the birds are fat and stupid and living on the ground, well done you. <laughs> it's bad, but I can't blame the animal. <laughs> yeah. So I saw something in news which I thought was interesting. It's something that you and I, Tom, have dabbled with in the past. And it kind of leads on roughly to what we're going to talk about later. But five years ago, there was a video feed from an ROV broadcast on Facebook. In that video, there was this strange-looking tinophore, which is a comb jelly. It had these two big, long tentacles, which were quite unique. There's a guy called it was Alan Collins at Noah saw it and went, ooh, that's a new species. Five years later, he's described it, and he's committed the cardinal sin in taxonomy. So this is an ongoing, contentious part of science in taxonomy where the description of species, giving it a name. Basically, the rules are right now, you can't name something unless you've killed it. And killing it provides a holotype, which means you've got a reference material deposited somewhere in a museum. So for forevermore, there's a, a, you know, a point of reference you can go back to and say, this is what we're calling this particular species. And of course, you also get associated DNA stuff. But then where it becomes a tricky grey area is what do you do with the jellyfish? Because they don't preserve. They're very difficult to catch anyway. And even if you can, you put them in ethanol and they basically just waste away. So there's no point having a holotype. So that brings up the question then, can you name it without having caught it. And there's a quote in the story from from one of the colleagues about, uh, he says, uh, you're talking about trying to pick up a creature the size of a tennis ball with a robot the size of a Volkswagen, <laughs> right? with a guy controlling it with a joystick from the surface. And even if they had caught it, there would have been the problem of keeping it intact, as tinophores are very difficult to preserve. And this guy says quite a number of the jars look like there's nothing left in them because they basically disintegrate immediately upon preservatives. But this has just reignited this debate, and it was a it was a fly, I think, from the Amazon or something that sparked us off a few years back. But it's it's an argument that surfaces a lot. Yeah, and someone else has come out and they've they've amassed more than 120 co-authors to counter this practice of naming stuff without killing it, and they're saying it's like saying you can identify the murder weapon with a photo of the weapon, and even if you could, it's always good to have the weapon to come back to to do a ballistics test. That's their response to it. So they're saying this thing should always be known as the unknown comb jelly, even though the chances of anyone ever catching it are pretty, pretty slim. But mm. I'm all for just giving it a name, but with the footnote of it's never been actually been caught, because at least that way people can have the conversation and they know they're talking about the same animal. Whereas yeah. calling it Tina 4-1 or Tina 4-B or Tina 4-unknown or whatever is not particularly useful. I think what's useful is we now know it exists. 
all the standardized Latinized names, the whole point of them is that when we're having conversations about things, we are all on the same page. We're all talking about the same animal. Mm. We've discussed a lot. We've argued about sort of a middle ground, a bit of a classification before the f- official holotype. Yeah, and there's, there's, I think there's, there's flexibility on both sides of that argument anyway. I mean, I think taxonomists always talk as if they're always 100% correct every time, but there are many, 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 many occasions where even the the conventional way of doing it hasn't been enough and species need to be reclassified. You know, sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes genetics come along and say, nope, that's not happening. And we're constantly readjusting science. That's what science is, right? Production of new evidence allows you to then tweak what you thought was right before. Where this gets contentious is like, nope, our way is the right way, your way is the wrong way. And there are, there are these little nuggets in there which are actually quite difficult to resolve. And it's a cross between those who think everything should be done exactly from protocol and those who are like, it would just be more useful if you just called it this. There's a few weird ones. Is that there's a songbird as well, which is identified by its call. And it's its call that differs from a related species. And so there is a holotype. There is a, a specimen to be compared to, but it does not contain the character that identifies that species. And so it's, <laughs> it's not an effective holotype. Do you want to just put a little cassette player in there too? If you're looking at this bird... That would just play. make me sad. Here's, the, here's yeah. the bird happy and alive. Just watch a dead bird drowned in ethanol tweeting away like it's happy as Larry. Oh. It's something really tragic about that. We're getting quite dark today. I know, I know. We're, <laughs> we're a bit tired. And it's all it's all spiralling into the darkness right now. I, I understand the sort of the policing a little bit and trying to maintain a sort of level of, of standards. But I, I think the the thing I'm realising more and more is that life is this is this continuum with these massively blurred boundaries. And we're desperately trying to catalogue and put labels on things just to allow us to communicate and allow us to do our science. But life really blurs those lines. And, and even what a species is, is really up to human interpretation. Like we all learn in secondary school, even like what defines a species, but we never test it. We never check that things can't interbreed or can't produce fertile offspring. True. It, it, it is a total judgment call that something is different enough to be a new species. And that's based on experience. It's based on somebody who's an expert in that particular group. So on the subject of naming things, right, I think the subject of naming species and things like that is a subject for another one. But on this particular episode, we're going to talk about geology because we haven't really spoke about geology much. But I think we talk about geology and particularly geomorphology or the shape of the seafloor and mapping and bathymetry and topography. And there's lots of little nuggets of interesting things in there. If you think about geomorphology and the shape of the seafloor, that shape is, is more to it than that. There's a story to be told in there. When you look at the, the maps of the, of the seafloor, you see it contains the depths, it contains features, it contains features within features and the steepness and the aspect, and more importantly, the history of how it ended up the shape that it is now. So you can just look at a map and you've almost got like a four-dimensional interpretation of what you're looking at, if you know what you're looking at, rather than it just being, oh, it's deep over there and there's a couple of seamounts over here. But people have been wondering about the shape of the seafloor since the days of Aristotle. Although, from his point of view, apparently it was more a curiosity, but a lot of chin scratching went on, I suppose. There are two ways of looking at the seafloor. So there's a single map, right? like a three-dimensional map, which is what we use on the day. You know what the seafloor is like now. And then, it's, like I say, there's this four-dimensional thing, which is geological time. The first inkling of trying to understand the shape of the seafloor, from what I can figure out, was goes back as far as Abraham Ortelius in 1596 and he produced the first modern atlas of what's the golden age of Netherlandish cartography which is my favourite Netherlandish age of all time and on inspecting these latest maps he basically made 
what a, quite a simple but quite revolutionary observation. He said, doesn't it look like South America and Africa seem to fit together? <laughs> right, that's, it's like if you were to push those together, they, they kind of fit. That's weird, isn't it? Lads, come and check this out. The west coast of Africa seems to fit directly on the east coast of South America. That's weird. And everybody went, hmm, yeah. And then nothing happened for a few hundred years. So prior to the last quarter of the 18th century, our understanding and the visualisation of the deep sea was largely derived from imagination because there were no technologies available to really give it dimension. You just knew some bits were deep. So we felt it would see monsters and encouraged by malevolent map illuminators. So Ortelius, he actually got a job called the Illuminator of Maps. You ever heard of an Illuminator of Maps, Tom? Uh, no. How do, so he's That's a job title, Illuminator of Maps, right? And what that is, it's the best job title in the world, but it's when you finish drawing a semi-useful map, or an incredible good map, depending on when you are, and you get bored and you start doodling sea monsters all over it, just to scare the bejesus out of drunken sailors. It's when you take the map and you make it really beautiful and you do the big fancy text and the you know the big first capital letter and you make it look all and the wind blowing with a little face and cherubs and the octopus coming out of the water and there be monsters and all that kind of stuff. So that's what Ortelius did. And that's separate from making the map. Somebody makes an accurate map and then you Alice in Wonderland Mm -hmm. it. Wow. Yeah. I didn't. I assumed that happened at the same time. I think it's just because a bunch of drunken sailors must have knocked his pint over in the pub and he went, I'm going to get my revenge on these guys. And he must have known they were sailing to the New World or something, so he just put loads of like sea monsters and stuff and just to, put them on. Just to rattle their cage a little bit on the journey. But anyway, so at that time, once navigational routes had been established, there was really no need to extend exploration any further as long as the sea was deeper than the hull of any given vessel. So it seemed at that point the depth of the oceans were an exclusively academic pursuit and it was considered at the time an expensive folly. As maps of the land became more developed, there was a sudden switch to almost guessing what the seascape was based on the landscape. This is when people started to actually go and have a look and and measure. For example, the Challenger and Dolphin expeditions in the late 1800s discovered what is now known to be the Puerto Rico Trench on the north side of the island arc of the Lesser Antilles in the Caribbean. And uh, a few years later, as the maps of Antarctica started to circulate and were looked at with a more geological squint, the renowned Austrian geologist Edward Zeus hypothesised, based on the Caribbean formation, when he looked at the formation of the South Sandwich Islands, he said, ooh, that's the same thing. I bet you a tenor there's a massive big deep chasm on the far side of that. And he was right. This is this is like proper interpretation stuff, and there's no reason to believe, there was no any measurements whatsoever to suggest that the ocean was really deep on the far side of South Sandwich. And right enough, 15 years later, the German ship Meteor went out and found the South Sandwich Trench. Before we even get in underwater, they're trying to make inferences of what the seascape looks like based on, on, on land. It's all based on maps. So around this time, you've got two parallel stories are starting to develop. There's stories about the depth of the ocean, which led to the three-dimensional shape of the seafloor as to what it is now, or what we call bathymetry, and that was guys like John Murray, which you spoke about before. And the history of the oceans and continental drift theory and things that were, well, like that, which were credited to Alfred Wegener. So the latter is somewhat surprising given how much we take plate tectonics and earthquakes and spreading centres and subduction for granted as science fact. But Alfred Wegener was arguing this relatively recently. Believe it or not, geologists were still arguing this in the late 1960s. And for a long time, people thought with all these volcanoes going off, the Earth must be getting bigger. And it was called the expanding earth theory. So the, the part of it was loads of really renowned geologists saying, no, 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 the earth's getting bigger. They just couldn't figure out how. But they figured that if all these volcanoes keep introducing new lava up into the surface, then of course it's getting bigger. Getting bigger but getting hollow. Well, this is it. Or they thought maybe the, it was compressed in the centre of the earth and it's relaxing. So it's become, it's like a having a sponge ball in your fist and, it, and just letting it relax. The mass is the same, but the volume gets bigger. 
This led to the whole bunch of lively debates between what were called the drifters, who were supporters of the theory of continental drift, which basically means subduction gets rid of the new sea floor, if you like, and the fixists who were opponents of it. And in response to the plate tectonic theory, even in the 60s, a guy called Andrew Lawson said, I may be gullible, but I am not gullible enough to swallow this poppycock. Which is great, because then it... Then he swallowed it. <laughs> well, he did. He had to swallow it. The Royal Society in 1965 said, yeah, tectonic theory. That's the business. So then two other things started happening. Those were naming undersea features and then ownership of undersea features. And this, this is where things start to become really interesting. So... Contrary to popular belief, you can't just name an underwater feature. You can't just name any old thing because you discovered it or you, you found it unnamed on a map. And there, there are really stringent procedures. And undersea feature naming applications have to be filed with the International Hydrographic Organization in Monaco, which we talked about in the Prince Albert episode. So, and the application is not trivial. I've done these. And it requires a quite a high degree of cartographic expertise. And there are strict regulations as to what you call the feature, because there are, there are a list of recognised features, like basins and ridge and fracture zones, hills, seamounts and so on. And there are very strict regulations about what name you can give it. So you can't just name it after your girlfriend or your, your best friend's dog or anything like that. You, you know, it's, it's not a free-for-all. It's quite a regulated thing. So they prefer it to be named in association with the regional area, if possible. If there's nothing obvious geographically, you can name it after, for example, the ship that discovered it. So if you think about when they discovered the Mariana Trench, they probably thought... Well, what's the nearest island, sir? Well, that would be the Mariana Islands, Captain. So then it was just like, all right, Mariana Trench. And, you know, when they discover Challenger Deep, they're like, well, what are we going to call it? I said, well, who found it? I said, well, we did, sir. Okay, Challenger Deep it is. You know, it's, in those days, it was probably a bit easier. But the same way as we're talking about the biology, you're giving it a name so at least you can talk about it. Someone says, where's the deepest place in the world? There's no point rattling off a Latin long or the big hole about slightly southeast to the, this island of such and such. You know, you just give it a name. So the point was it was easier to have a feature named for convenience and clarity. This was set up in all great best intentions, but I think it, but culturally it may have creeped away from the specific guidelines. So there's this amazing paper from 1987 in the journal Geology called A Proposal for Modesty. You know, when you see a title like that, you're like, right. When you see that, you know we've been bad. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Dad. Yeah. So anyway, this is where a geology legend called Robert Fisher essentially just goes off on one about the culture of naming features without going through the official channels. So he was clearly a review in number three, because it pretty much starts with, right, enough is enough. I've just reviewed yet another paper and people are making up stupid names. <laughs> right? So there's a couple of quotes from this paper, which I just love. First one is, unwittingly, they presumably the authors, join too many parvenu scientists who offhandedly baptise a deep-sea topographical feature that may have been well-known and explored, and they gin up a name, place it on an illustration, perhaps mention it in the text, get it passed by a harassed editor into the literature, and consider it a name for prosperity. Another one he says, on the other tack, some editors' editorial boards or technically specialised reviewers apparently know so little about historic courtesy, significant commemoration, or even good taste that the seafloor has been littered and cluttered with personal in-group self-aggrandising, back-scratching, or trite unimaginable names of or ugly acronyms i'm like go on man that's brilliant so it does actually go on to remind people how it should be done which is largely the same protocol as it is today but i'm a massive fan of ranting so i love that paper to finish off you can't just name features any old nonsense there are guidelines but then then the ownership happened so there's another whole angle to this and so the naming had to change a little bit so all countries with coasts currently have a 12 mile territorial sea and a 200 mile exclusive economic zone or the eez 
with special rights regarding the exploration and use of brewing resources and so on and so on. But these are relatively new. I, did, I, I must admit, I was relatively surprised. I was surprised. staggered by that. It's so fundamental to our maritime law. Yeah. I can't believe it's fairly recent. I mean, I'm older than the Yeezys. This was mostly driven by squabbles regarding fishing rights, and the whole thing was pretty much driven by Peru and Chile. Peru and Chile wanted 200 miles. They wanted 200 miles of their own coast to just stop all this fishing nonsense. And that eventually became the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. And that was only brought in in 1982. So then 39 years ago, which is geologically nothing, but in the grand scheme of things, not that long ago, suddenly 250 million kilometres of seafloor suddenly belonged to somebody. Right? It didn't before. Before it was the ocean was for everyone. And obviously, when it comes to fishing and stuff like that, it leads to arguments. So you end up with a load of undersea features that once belonged to no one and were named by anyone who found them suddenly belong to the country. They end up in somebody's newly established backyard. And it's just whoever, whatever country will happen to be closest geographically. So in the case of trenches, we talk about trenches a lot, obviously, but given the form and the edge of tectonic plates, pretty much all of the Hadal trenches suddenly ended up in somebody's backyard. They're all now owned by someone else. There's no more... The ocean's there for everyone. So the man in our trench belonged to no one for the 107 years from its being discovered to the point where it then became the property of the United States overseas territories of the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands in Guam. Okay, so this is why so many under, underwater features don't necessarily match the current nationality of the area. So then the IHO had to rethink this and this whole undersea naming process. So this means you can't just name a feature in anyone else's waters now. If it's within someone else's EEZ, you then have to seek approval from the nation, the sovereign nation who now owns it. So it is very complicated. It's not just a case of, of, of running around the world naming stuff. So all this was inspired by the Twitter science police having a pop at us last summer about naming features that we actually didn't name at all. Uh, it was just misunderstanding. And it's one of these things, it's a bit like the taxonomic issue we were talking about earlier, and it does seem to raise its ugly head every now and again. People thinking that people are, are naming other features and so on and so on, which wasn't the case. In this particular instance, we didn't name anything, and we've got no intentions of naming anything we were accused of naming, which is weird. It's a subject which does cause arguments, and it does, as I say, periodically raise its head. And the point of me telling the story about maps and EEZs and undersea feature names and all the rest of it is there is a massive protocol like there is in taxonomy, but it's the same for undersea features. And you can't just go out and do stuff. There is There are guidelines in place. As per Robert Fisher's massive rant, his proposal for modesty, it still stands after all these years. I mean, you, you shouldn't just go out and try to name stuff by squeezing into literature. That doesn't work. You know, It, it has to be recognised by these international organisations. Solid. That's interesting. So thinking about all things mapping in geology and geomorphology and undersea features and all that stuff, what we need is a geologist. Somebody who knows what they're talking about, at least. Yeah, do we know any? I feel there's, there's someone we rely on heavily when this all gets a bit complicated and we want to know what the rocks are thinking. We want to know what the rocks have been doing in the past. We want someone to do forensics on the planet. Yeah, we need someone to explain why they haven't mapped the oceans properly yet. Actually, that's valid, because we get loads of stick about that. Yeah, we're forever hearing about how little of the Earth we've mapped and how we know more about Mars and, and the Moon and stuff like that, so we're going to have to get a geologist on to basically justify why they haven't finished mapping the oceans yet. Yeah, if we've come to the conclusion that it's a mapping problem, that when we know more about blah, 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 it's about amount mapped, that's not our jurisdiction, yeah. that's not our fault. These geologists need to be held accountable for this. This is a travesty, apparently. We should at least forward all the emails we get. Yeah. <laughs> every time we see that, every time we see that moon or Mars analogy, we'll send it directly to our chosen geologist for today. 
a geology victim. Yeah, who represents all of geologists, past, present and future. So what she says is now gospel in the world of geology. She's the geology pope. Yes. So let's give her a call. All right, so joining us today is our friend and colleague and practically a regular on the show now. It's geologist and explorer Heather Stewart from the BGS. Hello, Heather. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Getting there. Spring is in the air. It's feeling good. All right. That's a bit enthusiastic. I'm not sure we, we allow that on the show. <laughs> you know me, Al. I know. Yeah. Right, so anyway, let's kick off. So for the benefit of, I know what you do because I've worked for you for a long time, but uh, for the benefit of the listeners, Tell us a bit about your expertise. What do you do in the world of rock knocking? <laughs> so um, I basically study the shape of the seafloor and what it's made of. And also, I do also look at what's underneath the, the seafloor as well. But basically, I'm trying to figure out what has made the seafloor that way. Was it a process that occurred in the, in the geological past, in the dim and distant past? Or is it something that's been actively modified today, being actively moulded and shaped by ocean currents or changed by submarine landslides and uh, things like that? So, so you're a marine geologist then? Because I know geologists have a different way of pigeonholing themselves. Sedimentary, metamorphic, yep. Glaciologists, yep. Metamorphic, yeah. We so love them. People actually classify themselves as, no, no, I'm a metamorphic geologist. Is that, is that a thing? Yes, very oh. much so. Yeah, we've got our, our different sort of disciplines as well. So then why don't geologists call themselves deep sea geologists? Why is that an exclusive prefix to the biologist? I think it's because we just don't care <laughs> about water depth. We don't see, uh, you know, imaginary lines at 200 metres or 600 metres depth. As geologists, we tend to look at processes and evolution of a of a landscape or in, in my case a seascape and also i mean go back through geological time and what you see on land now you know many of those rocks and things were were once underwater they were erupted or deposited under the sea and they end up after millions of years preserved on land so as a geologist we frequently study rocks on land that were formed deep underwater millions of years ago mm. So there's that, but I think also the seafloor isn't actually all that deep for them. Geologists also undertake studies looking at the structure of the earth. For example, the, the Mohorovic discontinuity is the boundary between the earth's sort of rocky outer crust where we all live. Otherwise known as the Moho. <laughs> yep, Moho for short, we love it. So the boundary between the sort of rocky outer bit that we all live on and the more plastic mantle, and that's the Moho. And that's, you know, five to ten kilometres underneath the ocean floor and 20 to 90 kilometres between our continents. The seafloor itself, to some geologists, isn't actually all that deep. I quite like that. It's just like, you know, we don't, we don't call ourselves deep-sea geologists because, let's be honest, guys, it's not that deep. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Talking more about the shape of the seafloor and mapping and stuff like that, you know, we've talked about this before on the show about forever hearing the self-deprecating analogy about how little we've mapped the oceans and you know, how we know more about the maps of Moon and Mars and all this kind of stuff. Does this mean that geologists have failed us all? <laughs> all of it. Do you greet all your guests this way? Yeah. Use them of being the source of all that is wrong in the world. Yeah, because if you think about it, it's mostly <laughs> biologists who make this analogy. They're like, oh, only 10% of the Earth has been mapped. We know more about the Moon and all the rest of it. What they're saying is geologists are not doing their job. <laughs> they haven't been working hard enough. They've just been, I don't know what they've been doing. They've been going around with their little hammers and knocking on rocks and stuff, but they haven't been mapping the sea. So is 
Does British Geological Survey take responsibility for this on some level? <laughs> so many things wrong with what you've just said there. You know, one, our hammers can be quite big. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. And two, um, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's just biologists that tend to make that moon and Mars analogy. To be fair, you know, I think there's a fair amount of sort of science communication people, you know, geologists, okay, biologists, and TV you know, people. They, they do make that too. Yeah, I think we need to step back and look what drives exploration, what compels us to to map. If you think that by the mid nineteenth century, ships had been crossing the Earth's oceans for 200 years. And so the coastlines of the land masses were reasonably well surveyed by that time. But little was really known about the sea beyond a few tens of metres water depth, you know, like where you yeah. kind of could wade out into and, and hold your breath to dive down and, and have a little look around. But as time was passing, you know, there was increasing pressure to explore the oceans. Some of that was in the name of science, Challenger Expedition, for example. But you start to see more sort of commercial and military drivers, you know, yeah. resources, territory, communication, the desire to have telegraph cables between Europe and America. You could only do that with better maps of the shape and composition of the seafloor. So if you kind of fast forward 100 years to the sort of mid 1950s, it wasn't until the collaboration between, you know, Marie Tharp and Bruce uh, Hazing that they started to put together maps of the topography of the oceans. And the first map that they published was in 1957. And that was the first time that the complexity of the ocean floor was revealed. And that was a map of the North Atlantic ocean floor. It raised more questions than answers, to be fair. What was happening with that huge mountain range? Was that where a new crust was being created? At that point, we didn't have the accepted theory of plate tectonics. Plate tectonics wasn't accepted until 1965. So there was still quite a lot of debate and controversy about where's crust made, where's crust destroyed, you know, is everything fixed or is there such a thing as continental drift? That map in 1957 was the first time that, you know, we started to see a hint at some of these like global forces, but it was totally controversial. It was another 20 years before we had a map of the entire ocean floor. It is surprisingly recent, all of this stuff, isn't it? I mean, the, the tectonic theory in yeah. 1965 is bizarre, and you think about exclusive economic zones and stuff, that's only since 1983. Like a lot of these lines yeah. and the things that we take for granted now didn't actually happen until very recently. And, and you know, up until 1983, pretty much the whole ocean was fair game for the benefit of all. Now it's, now it's not. Now it's all sliced up into other people's backyards. Yeah, I think you made a good point about what we take for granted. You know, I mean, 1977, we've got that first ocean map and it shows the main plate boundaries delineated by giant mountain chains at convergent and constructive margins and ocean trenches at subduction zones. I think we take that for granted now. I think even sort of non-scientists will have some sort of inkling in the back of their head that the seafloor isn't just flat. Along those lines, even a sort of an amateur gingerly squinting at Google Earth will see that most of the Earth has been mapped, right? Although we know that's not strictly true, the analogy of we've only mapped whatever it was, 18, 20% of the oceans, is not strictly correct because that's how much we've mapped in terms of actually gone out with an echo sounder and made a three-dimensional relatively high resolution or high resolution map. But what's the rest of it filled out with? And I, I mean, I know the answer, but for the, for the, for the benefit of the discussion, if, if we know so little about the oceans and we don't have any maps of the oceans, how come is, what are the maps on Google Earth? How are they derived? Bathymetry, the measurement of the depth of the ocean, as you've said, there's a few different ways that we can, can make that those measurements and derive those maps. Satellites have taught us a lot 
about you know the seafloor. So certain spacecraft carry altimeters that can infer seafloor topography from the way that Earth's gravity sculpts the water surface above. So, you know, if you've got a, a submerged mountain, a sea mount, that'll create a bulge. And then you can do some quite complicated maths using the satellite data and you can create the map of what the seafloor is. So the satellite derived maps, the best resolution is about a kilometre. So for every kilometre, you'd have one data point telling you what that water depth is. So if you think about if you go out for a walk from your home and you walk a kilometre, how many lumps and bumps might you walk over? I mean, if you live in Norfolk, yeah, not very many. But if you live in the Highlands, uh, the village that I'm from in Colin, you would change elevation over that kilometre like massively, going up over mountains and hills and stuff. So is that one data point for a kilometre representative? It's an issue of scale. And that's when you come to direct measurements, most commonly done by ships. And you've used the term echo sounders. So most ships, even you know tankers and stuff, will have an echo sounder. So they, they will record you know single points along the ship's track that will tell us water depth. And these are, are useful because then over multiple crossings, these ships will, will help fill in some of the gaps in the maps and will help revise what the satellite data is telling us. It'll be able to sort of fill in and give us better resolution, more detail over those areas. And then there's also something called a multi-beam echo sounder. And so instead of one point of sound coming out from underneath your, your ship to tell you water depth, you get like a fan of sound comes out. And if you have a fan of data, then it's kind of like mowing the lawn. You end up with a, a corridor of high resolution information and you can just go out mowing the lawn with your multi-beam and filling in the gaps. But I mean, it's all down to scale. I suppose for some studies, having a kilometre resolution is, is going to be perfectly adequate. But if you want to start to make some proper decisions or lay new cables, you need to get more and more detail. And that's that's where things like multi-beam take. It's like these photographs you see of satellites that go up in like this, for example, they're going to go, going to go into a, an orbit around Pluto to photograph it, and you see the first photo, and it's just this fuzzy golf ball in the distance, right? And that gives you a certain amount of information in that there is a planet there, and then as uh, you know, over the months you see it getting better and better and better until the point you end up in orbit and you're picking out craters. That's the thing, isn't it? At what point do you consider that to be right? You know, because that's just because that that, yeah. that issue of distance is, is actually just one of of resolution. I had a really cool analogy once, but I ruined it on a very low-key press release. It was on the back of some multi-beam work we had done, and I was made aware of this. I say in inverted commas, scientific paper. I won't say what which journal it was in, but it was claiming that <laughs> this author had found evidence of the canal system in the lost city of Atlantis, because in the North Atlantic of the Canaries, there's this weird grid, and then there's this enormous line that goes all the way back to Europe, which is obviously an underwater alien highway of some kind. And all it is is the satellite data is very low resolution and a ship has gone out and they've done a grid shape, as you say, mowing the lawn back and forward. And then it's gone home. <laughs> but as it's yeah, gone it's home... it's just gone back to port. Yeah, but <laughs> what that is, is it's just a high resolution stripe through a low resolution background. So when I was trying to explain this, I was talking about if you could uh, picture a, a Moni, an impressionist artist who's made this lovely picture of, of lilies on the pond and you got Caravaggio to then paint over it in his style like a two inch strip down the middle of it without changing the composition of the photograph just adding resolution adding data it would look like there's a stripe in it yeah it was just nonsense but it, but it is weird when you look at google earth you do see these big long structures and that's nothing to do with the seafloor that's just a ship that's gone over it and filled yeah. in some detail you know we're at a point where we can say we've mapped 100 percent of the oceans it's just that 80 percent of it's a really bad resolution but it's not like there's going to be more big mariana trenches to be found we know that where all the deep bits are now it's more to do with 
not understanding a lot of the smaller features or the features within features. Yeah, definitely. But there's also kind of just even having baseline data is the only way to identify change. Change and rates of change are crucial in so many disciplines. There's also, I mean, I guess there's an element that we didn't know that we needed the data until you get the data. And suddenly you've got a bunch of questions that we didn't even know that we needed to ask. Hmm. We've been on a, a survey together, Alan, and we've discovered submarine landslides that nobody knew were there. And they're right adjacent to a heavy populated margin. And you suddenly realize, right, okay, these are a geohazard. How old are they? How big are they? Has it impacted this shoreline before? What's the likelihood that it might do it again? The information that you can only get from detailed maps is the only way that you can answer some of these things. Yeah, I get, I get that in terms of, you know, there are particular areas of interest that, you, you know, it's very important that you understand it. But I'm just trying to sort of unpick this idea that everyone seems so unbelievably disappointed with, with marine scientists because they haven't mapped the oceans. So my question is, if I could snap my magic fingers and the entire ocean was suddenly mapped to the highest resolution possible, would that instantly change the way we think about the Earth based on what we already know? We don't have enough people to even look at that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure anything, there'll be, there'll be a great change in, in understanding of the planet the next day. It would still take a lot, years and years and years for people to unpick that, but it's, it's a weird thing to want to strive for because it doesn't necessarily give you all the answers because you still need to go out and do work. You still need to get underwater. And the analogy there is we, you know, we're always banging on about how we've got better maps of Mars and then it's okay, so why have we just spent billions of dollars putting a rover up there? I thought the maps were all we needed. Because... Now we've got the maps and now we can ask and answer specific questions with targeted sampling. I mean, you're right. Yeah, the maps, is it's almost like the starting point. I love the fact that we've got this big aspirational goal to map the world's oceans. You know, I love that. I love, you know, lots of people are getting on board to, to contribute data, but we need to know what is there so that we know what questions to ask. But there's there's a lot of a lot of geologists, you know, we're still when we're trying to put concepts and trying to piece together the processes that have led to a certain seafloor feature or thinking about the, the multiple overprinting of different things, we'll get out pens and pencils and sort of sketch sketch it out. You know, it's just our brains are, are wired up. You know, we're very visual people. Geologists I think are very visual. So you do you see maps as being this weird abstract artistic storytelling platform? That if, once you make a new map or someone presents you with a new map, or even if it's seismic data, do you just see it as data or do you see it as the history of that area is suddenly unfolding as you subconsciously decipher all these bumps and cracks and and depth gradients and so on? Because I, I, I see it like that now. I never look at the globe the same since I started doing this. It's the, I, do, I do little lectures on stuff like this and talk about, you know, why is Japan the shape it is? People never even thought about that before. Why, why is Japan? It's a kind of weird yeah. banana shape. And then you start looking at the tectonics and the triple junction. It's like it's the only shape it could ever be. And the whole thing tells a story and you can explain why countries are the shape they are. And I don't think most people really would get that. So I, I see it as a kind of almost artistic storytelling platform. Definitely. Going back to your first point, you know, do you see it just as data or something visual and you're unpicking the, the evolution of the area and, and it becomes art? Yeah, all of that. There's always active debate at my work about what colour ramp to use to colour up your data. My colleague Dayton Dove, he is the king of the colour ramp. He just manages to create like the nicest colour ramps to really accentuate his data, you know, and it really helps him tell the story about what it is that he's, he's showing. The way that we display the data is key, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of, well, it not only sort of brings in other scientists and helps you tell your research stories better, but I mean, it's crucial for engaging, you know, with the public. You know, we have regular open days at my work and the bathymetry that we show, we've 
they always just capture the imagination of people. And we do cheat, though, don't we? Because we just we just published a paper <laughs> recently that had had a, a section in there about how underwater features are always presented in the abstract. So the color ramp is data, but it's not real, right? So the, yeah. of course, like the Mariana Trench is not rainbow striped, but that helps you kind of visualize it. It's 50 shades of brown. 50 shades of brown or every <laughs> shade of the rainbow. So in reality, it's 50 shades of brown, but we always put quite a heavy vertical exaggeration on these things to bring it out. So when you watch things like Blue Planet and stuff, the trenches are always these big, huge, super steep things. And in reality, they're actually not very impressive at all. So we, we'll maybe put this on the podcast page. It's a figure we did when... If you show a picture of Mount Everest, you're like, oh, that's Mount Everest. If you put the same vertical exaggeration on Mount Everest that we normally put on Mariana Trench, it looks absolutely ridiculous. It looks like something at Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And that's the weird one. So so even what people visualize in terms of undersea features is still not actually really that true. There's a big high probability that there's a lot of vertical exaggeration on that. I think you're you're wrong when you're sort of saying, you know, well, it's not that impressive. It bloody is. <laughs> you know, it, the seafloor is just an absolute myriad of different shapes and textures and processes that are all just left waiting for us to to unravel and to tell a, a story about. Actually, one of, the, one of the coolest features I remember is we did a paper a while back and it was, if you look at the trenches of New Zealand, like Kermadec and, and Tonga and so on, they're, particularly Tonga, it has these big long ripples at the bottom of it. You know, and and on the map, when you look at the map of the Pacific, it's just like, yeah, there's a trench down there. If you look at the trench, you go, yeah, there's big long ridges at the bottom of there. It's only when you start to put yourself in the bottom of the trench. Those ridges run for like hundreds and hundreds of miles and are about two and a half kilometers high. If they were on land, some of those features, they would be wonders of the world. Yeah, absolutely. But because they're buried down at 10, 10, you know, close to 11,000 meters, somewhere in the South Pacific, they just look like bumps and ripples on the bigger map. And it's only only when you get your your sort of GIS and get your your tools in there and start looking at the actual size and go, what if I was stood next to that? What would that look like? Suddenly you're like, oh, the Grand Canyon is nothing compared to this. I think that's really cool. That's what I like about stuff like that, when you start rummaging around in all these far-off places looking for interesting things. Well, I'm reminded about, you know, the first project that we worked together on the Habitat Hedgegeneity. We'd met through the... Marine Alliance for Science and Technology Scotland. Nice plug. I know, I know. <laughs> Just I hope the guys are listening. That's masts for short, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and you sent me a lot of your seafloor photographs. So, because you'd been going to these trench environments for years and years and years, you had all these seafloor photographs. And you said, oh, you know, could you do me a favour and just maybe give, cast your geological optical balls over them and give me an interpretation? So I did that. And then I started looking on things like Google Earth or there's other sort of big data repositories like Jebco, for example. And I started looking at bathymetry to get a bit of context for where these photos were taken, which parts of the trench was it on the underriding plate, the overriding plate, and started to see all of these amazing features, just as you've described. But I suppose there's also a little cautionary tale in that as well. And um, we went to the, the Kermadec Trench back in 2017. And do you remember there was the seamount? Oh yeah, the lost seamount. That was <laughs> so I had um, interpreted, and we'd published it as well. This picture of the bathymetry. You don't have to, you don't have to tell people we published it. I love it. I love it. So there's all these sort of what we call bed-related faulting, which are these big cliff systems that Alan was just describing there. But also, you get a certain amount of volcanism associated with these, these subduction trenches. I'd been looking at the data and interpreted these fault systems and the, the, the volcanoes and stuff, but there was this really massive one right in the deepest part of the, the trench. The shawl deep. Deep. Yeah. And we were doing a little survey over the top of it. So 
it was being done overnight. So I went and crashed out and got a couple hours sleep. And I got up and rushed onto the bridge. And Ashley Roden was chief scientist on that uh, from Niwa in New Zealand. And I was like, oh, excellent, right? What did the sea mount look like? And are we going to drop a, a lander on it? And he's like, what sea mount, Heather? It's not there. And I was like, oh, kill the other one. Yeah, right. And he's like, no, seriously. We started looking at the data and it was it was a, a data artifact. It was not there. It was just not real. <laughs> We'd planned to do all this sort of science around this bloody sea mount and it just didn't exist. It's weird because it did look really real, didn't it, on the map? Oh, yeah. It had multiple data points as well. It wasn't just sort of, you know, one of these, you know, one point in a kilometre, you know, that we were talking about earlier. It had multiple data points associated with this feature. I wanted to actually submit that to the IHO to have it officially named the Lost Seamount and under the description, just in very small font at the bottom, say it's also invisible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was asked by some school children, you know, it's like, oh, do you like proving people wrong? The old maps, you know, do you like going, oh, well, actually, you know, this is what's there. And I was like, well, actually, you know, those earlier maps were snapshots in time based on the, the best available data at the time. And I'd like to think that we're adding to the story, we're adding yeah. to the narrative. We've got new new technology, you know, and there'll be better technology in two years' time, 10 years' time, 50 years' time. That'll prove some of my research wrong. You know, when that's that's fine. It's all part of the narrative. It's part of the story. It's part of building on, on what we know and understand about the, the seafloor. Going back to individual features, I mean, we always talk about big ones like trenches, but there's a whole bunch of other ones in there. Then there are features within features within features and so on and so on. So like vents and ridges and seamounts and canyons, trenches, whatever. Is there any particular feature that you're particularly fascinated by? And is there any particular feature that you've actually mapped and just don't get? Oh, lots. Everything. All of it. Um, I'm incredibly lucky that I actually really like my job. And both you and Tom have been offshore with me quite a bit now and you realise that I'm a bit excitable. And I think that every time we go out, there's always something new. There's always something interesting to get you going and appreciate the opportunity that you've been given to go, to go out into the field. I do love the bend-related faulting that you get in these trenches. You know, I was relatively unaware of, of that until we started working together in, in trenches. It's just really cool and it's just mind-boggling because, as you say, they stretch for hundreds of kilometres and now um, doing a little bit of research, looking at some uh, submarine footage. It's actually from your dive in, in Java. And I'm looking at mapping what we can see with the multibeam. And you took a, a transit up one of these faces. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, you know, a sheer cliff. There's sort of steep vertical sections and then sort of smaller, uh, more horizontal flat sections, more like a sort of step or a staircase as you're, as you're going up these things. But once you start looking at that in more and more detail... You start to see jointing surfaces, you know, which as they're intersecting, so this is part of the the fabric of the rocks that these vertical faces are made from. As the the joints, so the the sort of weaknesses, these flat weaknesses in the rocks sort of intersect, you know, they form areas where blocks fall off and they become talus and scree. This little sort of rock field um, at the at the bottom of some of these surfaces, or they're perched, you know, rather precariously yet to fall. But also you start to see that there's obviously some sort of fluid movement going on that's using these weaknesses in the rock, these joints. And you start to see that it's all just starting, it's all highlighted by this sort of chemosynthetic bacterial mats. You know, these amazing sort of shocks of orange and white and yellow and blues even picking out these weaknesses in, in the rocks. And I think that's brilliant. I love that video. I think even even now, after everything we've done since then, that, that whole Java Trench subdive is just magical. I don't know how we're going to ever beat that. Yeah, I agree. You know, actually getting eyeballs on one of these bend-related faults that 
we've been mapping using multi-beam data, actually being able to get some eyes on it is telling us a lot more. But that's, that's how we chose that site, because the site, the whole point of that whole expedition was to get a guy down at deepest point, so he did his dive, and then said, okay, there's going to be a second one, where are you going to go? And that's where we pull out the maps, we look at the echo sounder data, and it was literally like no one's ever been anywhere near this place, no one's ever been near this depth, so we could actually go anywhere. The whole dive was based on, there's a big steep wall there. Yes! Basically, <laughs> no one's, you know, we might as well, because we've been on the bottom, so let's just pick a feature, because everything's quite exciting. Yep. Speaking of which, in your 20-year career, oh God. is that giving away oh your age? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> of your 40-year career, what are the highlights? What's the what's the thing that if you were forced to retire now, if you were fired right now on the spot and escorted off the premises? <laughs> Gosh, I love the fact that we went from retiring to just getting yeah, fired but, just on the spot. Yeah. Heather, clear out your desk. Here's a, here's a little cardboard box. Put your things in it. If that were to happen, what would be the thing you look back on and go, that was cool as? From just a sheer, this is just one of the best things that, I've ever been part of. It has to maybe bizarrely be that first trench trip. So December 2015 down to the South Shetland Trench. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It was my first trench expedition, but it was the whole thing. It was just all of it. You know, I mean, it wasn't so much the the science that we were down there to do. It was just the experience of it. I'd never been to the Southern Ocean before. It was my first trip down south. It started with sailing out of Punta Arenas and going through Glacier Alley. <laughs> oh, I remember you. In the I remember tip of you. South America. Yeah, yeah, that was quite funny. That was <laughs> quite funny. Never seen it such was happiness. Just fantastic, and it just got better from that point. You know, we sailed over Drake Passage. It was flat calm. It was like a mill pond. I've never had such calm. And weather. They could still give us a certificate for surviving the Drake's Passage. It was like, thank you very much. It I was know. rather pleasant. <laughs> and then that following day, when we're heading towards Livingston Island, which is part of the the South Shetland archipelago, that was just, it was breathtaking. I mean, the sky was just the brightest cyan blue. The sea was calm. There were humpback whales. There were penguins. But it was the glaciers and the marine terminated glaciers and icebergs just everywhere. And we just stood out on deck for about eight hours getting frozen to the bone. Just fantastic. I like Deception Island. I thought that was cool. You know, remember we had to go break the ice on it, so it was, it was just in the middle of this caldera that had frozen over and they wanted to get supplies to the base and they couldn't get the rib off the ship, so the ship just spent all afternoon just smashing into the ice sheet, just breaking it up. It was fantastic. Yeah, just the sea ice, but I mean, before we even got into Port Foster, which is the natural harbour at Deception, do you remember we had to sail round it to look for evidence of volcanic hazard? That's right, yeah. I was like, oh! As a geologist, you know, I was like, this could not get any better unless there was actually just a little eruption nearby. <laughs> it's just, I mean, the whole trip was just like amazing. And I know that we're talking a lot about the deep sea and, and trenches and things. But another part of my research is that I look on the marine environment around about the UK and the seafloor around about the UK preserves the imprint of past glaciations. So the last glaciation that happened around about the UK reached its maximum extent 30,000 to 24,000 years ago. So I think coming from that and looking at past glaciations and then actually going somewhere and seeing actual marine terminating glaciers and icebergs up close and personal was just... And we've done polar like, visits twice amazing. since then as well, haven't we? We've been to North and South since then. I mean, that was just fantastic as well. You know, we went up and saw, you know, we went up to 80 North. We had cocktails next to a, a calving glacier in Svalbard. Oh, it was the noise it made. Boom! Yeah, that was the freaky <laughs> bit, isn't it? You're just sitting there chatting away, mind your own business, and then the yeah. entire earth just goes... Brr. I 
did a dive. That's right, you did a dive. Are you now officially the deepest diving British female of all time? I think so. I think uh, John Copley has said that, and he kind of does quite a lot of research into this sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah, I think I, I think I am. It's quite cool. Excellent. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. And like we were just saying about the Java dive, getting down and being able to see the seafloor make decisions on the spot about what you maybe want to go and investigate you know an amazing opportunity and sort of dive a sea mount in the in the arctic ocean is definitely a career highlight yeah so before i go though could you could you just have a word with all of the geologists and tell them to sort of like buck up their ideas and and finish the rest of the map because a lot of people are complaining a lot of people are upset by this yeah i'll, I'll go to my director and just ask her to sort of redeploy every single geologist yes. to map the oceans yeah i'll write a proposal now the truth of the matter is it's going to be like painting the fourth road bridge. Yeah. It's never going to be fully mapped. As soon as we finish mapping it, you're going to start again with the old stuff with the newer tech. The more I think about these these analogies, I mean, it started off as a bit of a rant, but the more I think about it, the more I think it's almost slander. Well, I just worry that it sets the precedent that stuff will be done, that yeah. it will be finished. Yeah. As soon as it is all done, we will start again with the new tools and the better resolution, and then it'll be 4D. Then we'll have time in there as well. Yeah. Why do any of us get up out of bed in the morning? Um, to, to bang our heads against this futility. <laughs> <laughs> it's all futile. Could I ask a couple of questions, Heather? No. Yeah? We talked about the the sort of inferred data and the directly acquired data and how that led to what looks like roads, but is in fact just a vessel moving back and forth. But the other one that gets brought up quite a lot is is the sort of Mayan pyramids and things like that. And my, my understanding oh, has always yeah. been... The data as it comes in is a point cloud. It is just dots of measurements at a certain point. We then, when we process it, we put that into a grid. And if the data is very sparse, yeah. the grid will be populated as a flat line, essentially, as a flat surface, because there's no other data to yep. put in there. Yep. So you get this little stepped pyramid yeah. like coming up. And yeah. it's just low-density data. Yep. And it's and you've maybe just got that one point, which is the, the top of your pyramid. And then everything else is just sort of the oh, software filling the in the gaps. algorithm going, yep. <laughs> and it creates this step. I know it's just brilliant. The analogy I could think of is it's if you, if you take a photo of a flower with your digital camera and then you zoom right in until you can see the pixels and then you can just go, look at all these squares. That can't occur in nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly a robot daisy. There's a whole team of folk that just pick apart Google Earth and they're all getting excited over anomalies. In the data, not in the earth. Yep. And they all think they've found Atlantis or the Mayans. People look for stuff that they want to see, regardless of the science that's presented to them. So they just that's not going to go away. The, the flat earth thing is, has taken such a hold. Anyone who's been to sea and has travelled over the ocean, <laughs> it just... I was just about... We must be linked somehow, Tom. I was just about to say, I wonder what flat earthers think about this whole mapping all of the oceans or even just this sort of global map that we've got at the low resolution. Apparently, we're, <laughs> we're just making it all up to keep this conspiracy going. But, like, it wouldn't work. Like, even when we're planning how much fuel to take, we've, we've sailed the places yeah. that they said aren't joined up and it didn't take yeah. four weeks and we didn't turn around. It's a great thought exercise. It's a great, like, how do we separate valid science and data from pseudoscience and how and i i think the majority are just having fun i think yeah it's like an yeah. arg it's like a okay let's let's start with this what unusual things can we find that line up with it you know it's the same as any conspiracy theory if you start with the conclusion and then you can always find 
correlations. You can always find like, oh, and isn't it strange that this person was here on this date? Well, someone was going to be there. There was a good study done ages ago, well over 10 years ago now, I read somewhere. It was about, if you think of a story, you can use statistics to back it up, regardless of what it was. And they did a statistical correlation between climate change and the downfall of pirates. <laughs> when the CO2 levels started to soar was around the time people stopped pillaging the oceans. For the, for like, you know. uh, and yeah, and it's quite a strong correlation. So ever since the pirates stopped doing their thing in the Caribbean, uh, the temperatures have gone up. That's when society started going yeah. down. So we need to get level. those pirates back out, get more cannons, doubloons and parrots and wooden legs and all that stuff and get back out there. Cornish and accents. Yeah. And creating maps. You've yeah, got to have a map exactly, of where it's buried. Yeah. Yes, we're back to maps. Come full circle. Oh, it's like we have a plan. Yep. <laughs> Last question of the day. What's the best party you've ever been to? Gosh, the best party. Uh, there's been a few over the years, haven't there? I wouldn't know. Um, finishing the five deeps in Svalbard, having a barbecue in about eight degrees, but outside in front of a glacier, drinking cocktails, having a barbecue. We'd just finished going around the world. I had done a, my first sur- and only submarine dive. Yeah, that was pretty epic. That's the one with the creaky glaciers. Yeah. And the walruses that stink. And and watching the humpback whales feed and polar bears. Yeah, it's just, geez. It's hard to top that. We're bloody lucky, aren't we? We're so We lucky. are. We moan a lot for such lucky people. <laughs> I know, I know. All right, thanks very much, Heather. I'll see you next time. Always a pleasure, Alan. And I hope we manage to... What? No. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope that we could manage to get back offshore again, but then I was just like, oh no, it just sounds all a wee bit like... Ugh. This is your no. chance for a catchphrase. Right. This can be your, your thing now. <laughs> toodles. Yeah. <laughs> toodles and the sound of a teacup clinking. Yeah. Toodles. Yeah. 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 No, thanks very much for having me, guys. So, thank you very much, Heather Stewart from the BGS, and also thank you, Heather, for agreeing that our vastly understudied and undermapped oceans are, is, in fact, the fault of, of geologists. So, uh, you're now held accountable. So was, was that the conclusion to that? I mean, I was doing the sound tech stuff, but I, I don't remember no. her confessing. She did confess. Well, yeah. Uh, it was inferred. It was inferred. It was inferred. She, she, and the entire discipline of geology have are currently holding their heads in shame, saying, "I'm sorry, we've only managed twenty percent, and we've been at this for ages." Sorry, it's 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 at best a C minus for geology. I feel a bit mean for raining on everyone's parade as they're searching for Atlantis, but there is actually stuff on the seabed. There is actually signs of human habitation and the places that are submerged now that used to be on the land, and you can see signs of that. So I called upon my mate Dave. Everyone's got a mate called Dave, but this one's my one, uh, who is a marine geophysicist who works in archaeology. So I had a little chat with him, and he also, unfortunately, like anyone who's known me long enough, started sharing embarrassing tales from me at sea. We were chatting earlier on today, Dave, and there are actual things on the seabed, aren't there? There are actual interesting archaeological things. There are some things. Some things do exist on the seabed. <laughs> Is there anything that you were speaking to, that anyone you were speaking to, that you had a specific thing in mind? These people looking for, looking for Atlantis? or a... There's a lot of looking for Atlantis. There's a lot of lost civilizations. There's a lot of perfect road networks, which are actually just the track of a survey vessel. And there's lots of Mayan pyramids, which are just really sparse data being fitted to a grid. <laughs> yeah, you get. I think that's part of what a lot of it is. is and yeah, the gridding algorithms that they can use can produce a whole load of random effects. 
Um, and then you have natural features as well. There are natural rock formations that can look surprisingly square. If you go up to Malham Cove in Yorkshire and see the limestone pavement, a specific erosion pattern in the rock, which does make it look like an actual flagstone pavement. Because the crystalline structure of the rock itself is uniform and sort of geometric, and then the weathering sort of reveals that on a macro yeah, scale. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can get these what called joints that kind of run through or the rock itself, and they're, they're just planes of weakness, and they can be quite straight. Uh, and then when you start eroding through these plates of weakness, it gets prefer- preferentially eroded away. And so you do get these very kind of like straight fissures, which just in plan view then looks like a nice paved surface. But the, but there are genuine, genuine preserved sort of not just shipwrecks and things like that. There are like terrestrial human and habitation. Oh yeah, down definitely. There. You get, you do get a lot of sites. I mean, they're not Atlantis. Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe it is down there. We don't know. Maybe there is Atlantis hanging around somewhere. But specifically, I mean, there are a lot of sites that have become drowned over history. I mean, that sea level has fluctuated, not just sea level across the globe, kind of relative sea level as well. So there are areas where the land has sunk relative to the to the sea rather than the sea just rising as well. So you get drowned, you get drowned settlements. Uh, you do get quite a few in, uh, in the Mediterranean, a place called Pavla Petri, which is the one that immediately springs to mind, which is a whole drowned town. And because it's in the Med, and they can do cheating archaeology down there because it's very nice shallow water and it's all warm and clear. You can actually dive down there and you can see kind of the remains of the town actually on the seabed. And that has been mapped out quite extensively in the past. A bit close to home, there's a place called Dunwich in East Anglia. In the past, go back to Anglo-Saxon times, it's interpreted to have been along the same size of what London was at the time, actually. It was a, oh, wow. a very important port. And obviously East Anglia has a lot of coastal erosion, and just over time the coast eroded away, and the town fell into the sea. And they've actually found, by doing geophysical surveys and by diving down there, they've found actually large masonry blocks at the approximate locations of where these are supposed to be, so the, the remains are still there on the seabed. So this does exist. <laughs> Things do exist in the seabed. But it, it takes a little bit more frowning, a little bit more peering through the data. I know just from chatting with you, you track quite a lot of rivers and the, the whole of the North Sea used to be terrestrial, didn't it? It used to be land. Yeah, so that's it. I mean, going back in time past, you know, the modern civilization, back into, I guess, what people call the Ice Age, but the Ice Age itself was a, a series of Ice Age advances and retreats. And obviously when you build big ice sheets, the water has to come from somewhere. And so when big ice sheets are formed during these periods of glacial advances, sea level drops. And the North Sea itself, I mean, as you know, you've been out there enough times, it's pretty shallow. It doesn't take a great deal of um, sea level drop for the actual North Sea to become dry land. So there are whole swathes of time during, uh, well, prehistory, as I should say, where the North Sea has been dry land. You can actually see the remains of these landscapes either directly on the seabed. If you've got bathymetry data from the English Channel, for example, you can actually still see river channels actually still on the seabed from when this uh, this environment was dry land. And we know that this dates to a time when humans were um, occup- occupying that landscape. So there are aggregate dredging areas around the UK coast, for example, and from these areas there have been uh, various things coming up, such as hand axes, and then uh, other faunal remains. So mammoth teeth, uh, one that comes up every so often, antlers from deer and things like that. So you, you get an idea of this kind of large landscape. Everyone talks about a land bridge between the UK and the rest of continental Europe, but it was actually, and the North Sea wasn't, or at least the Southern North Sea, was an entire landscape. Uh, and that was exposed for you know thousands of years as just an extension of the landscape uh, that we know today. I mean, it must have been quite impressive actually coming up on 
what is the coastline now? I mean, if you imagine coming upon like the cliffs of Dover or something like that, I was just wondering from that, the like, seabed level, and it's yeah, you know, it's would been huge. <laughs> What's a a day to day in the life of a marine geophysicist working in sort of archaeology? Like I work in kind of commercial archaeology, so it's similar to on land. So on land, if they want to build a housing estate. There are a certain number of steps that they have to go through to get the consents through the environmental assessment and the historic environment, as it's known. And so archaeological assessment are all part of this. And so the same principle applies offshore. So if they want to build a big wind farm, which is kind of the massive major industry offshore in the UK at the moment, they need to go through a similar planning application process to what you do on land. A standard day, like most people's at the moment, is probably sitting at home in front of a computer screen. But no, we get a lot of geophysical data in. Uh, from survey companies and it's a case of running those through our various bits of processing interpretation software and looking for anything either on the seabed so shipwrecks being the obvious one that people tend to think of airplanes as well and then for the prehistoric environment stuff so looking for evidence of these drowned paleo landscapes which as you said earlier tracing rivers a lot of it is to do with identifying past river channels two reasons being that river channels are quite good landscape markers you're only going to get rivers when you're on land but another thing being that we know from comparison to terrestrial sites that you do tend to get kind of prehistoric sites sent, like kind of clustered around river channels. If you've got to guess where people were living, it's a good place to start. It is, yeah. Um, rivers were kind of the roads of the prehistory. We tend to look for these places and they, they can give us an indication of where people may have been living in this kind of drowned landscape. Very cool. We used to be a bit of a double act back in the day <laughs> uh, with the marine pre-development stuff with... You handling the geology and me checking on all the wee little animals. But actually, I'm we, surprised we... I'm allowed in here. I don't do fish. Am I allowed on this? This is the fish free episode. Oh, this is fish free. Oh, that's okay then. I've got a special fish free pass. You're allowed to come on and talk about sand, but only once. <laughs> that's it. So we used to both go to sea. You had a, a Tales from the High Sea as well. As a bit of a double feature. Actually, should we talk about your first trip offshore? I've got to stop like getting people on this, you know me. <laughs> your first trip, you were seasick in a flat calm tied up alongside Abbey and Harbour, weren't you? I was very seasick for a lot of the first trip, because it was a lot of nerves as well. I was quite nervous. But you weren't even at sea! Nope, nope, <laughs> just a little bit of shimmy of the vessel was enough to get me throwing up. I think they were quite worried about that, because it's not, it's not something you can fire someone over, but... I know after hiring anyone new, the company is very, very interested in how are they at sea, how are they in weather. It's such an odd thing, isn't it? Because, I mean, you go and you get this job and you go and you have your medical and whatever else, but there's nothing really in day-to-day life or at uni or anywhere else other than, you know, like odd day trips. And suddenly like, right, you're now going to be on board for two months. And there's no way, <laughs> you know, it is some people deal with it and some people don't. And it's not fair on both counts. It's no. like... You can't fire someone for being seasick, but you also can't expect them to live in no. a place where they're constantly nauseous. I would hope if someone got that seasick, they'd probably leave. Didn't we know a captain who, there was something medical, like he had a stroke or something, and then he was seasick, having never been seasick in his life before? Oh, yeah, yeah, he was very seasick, wasn't he? Yeah, I remember. And that's like a, that's a career ruiner, right? Yeah. You know, you've, ri- you've risen to captain. It's not like us scumbags who could go and do something else. Yeah. I- I'm unapologetic about how seasick i am uh it still happens i i get my i get my sea legs in sort of after three days and i work really really hard during the mob knowing that i'm not going to feel well so sometimes i miss out on the sort of shore leave and the fun and games setting the lander up i know off by heart that takes 16 hours 
those 16 hours are much easier in port than they are when I'm trying to get my sea legs. Moving from like the proper offshore big survey vessels to the little coastal vessels that I'm used to, more used to these days, I'm sometimes quite terrible. Oh Small no, little boats, ones are rough. Yeah, they bounce around. Especially a catamaran or anything that's really wide. The, a job that we did on the south coast, I what was a fairly large catamaran that had a draft of about half a metre. And it was an absolute flat calm. The thing was rolling around. And I went up into the wheelhouse and the skipper standing there shouting at the boat and shouting at the sea going, where is this coming from? There are no <laughs> waves. Why are you moving? <laughs> I love that it's like a lover's spat. Like he walked in on a husband and wife fighting. Yeah, yeah, he was just shouting at the boat and shouting at the sea. <laughs> Why are you like this? Yeah. What is going on? I love it coming from a captain as well. It's yeah. like not some novice. <laughs> yeah. I was saying there's a captain who regularly skippered that vessel as well. So I just wonder how often he shouts at it. Far more personal than just like blaming his tools. It's like this is a long-standing argument. I'm at work and you're embarrassing me. <laughs> okay, so the important thing here is what does Don think about all of this? This is Don Walsh. I'm an oceanographer, but I'm not a marine geologist. However, I have history with marine geology I'd like to tell you a little sea story about that. From 1959 to 1962, I was the uh, Navy commander of the Bathyscaphe Trieste, as well as one of its pilots. The Bathyscaphe was a two-person submersible capable of diving to the deepest places in the ocean. We were based at the Naval Electronics Laboratory in San Diego, California, where we undertook uh, many projects supporting uh, oceanographic research uh, in the oceans. And I think it was in late 1961 or early 1962 that I had the opportunity to uh, make a dive off San Diego to uh, a depth of 4,000 feet to uh, test out some new instrumentation in support of our government's project VELA, V-E-L-A, which was to detect uh, the uh, explosion of nuclear devices uh, underground because a treaty was then being formulated between the United States and the Soviet Union that would prohibit the testing of nuclear weapons devices in space, uh, on land, on the surface, or on the oceans. This meant that future tests would have to be done in underground sites, that is, deep holes in the ground like mines and such where you could set off the device, but there was no uh, uh, concern about uh, releasing radiation into the Earth's atmosphere. The sensors that we would use for this test would be a type of micro-seismograph, a lot like the seismographs that are used globally to detect earthquakes worldwide, except that our sensors would be much more sensitive than those used for earthquake detection. The scientist that I worked with on this particular dive project was uh, Dr. Hugh Bradner from Scripps Oceanographic Institution. Hugh was a very distinguished physicist and geoscientist. And during World War II and in the early post-war years, he had actually worked on uh, developing and testing atomic bombs. In fact, he was present for the first test in New Mexico in July 1945. Now he was responsible for a critical part of the Project Vela testing program. 
working with our team, he had developed a very interesting uh, seismic sensor that we were going to place on the seafloor from the bathyscaph Trieste. It looked like an oversized basketball with a spike on the bottom and then a long umbilical which connected the sensor to our instrumentation inside the cabin of the Trieste. On our dive day, we towed the Trieste out to sea offshore from San Diego and dove in the San Diego trough to a depth of about 4,000 feet. Once we were on the seafloor, Hugh triggered off a release and dropped the uh, spike ball into the seafloor. It landed perfectly, and now we're ready to begin our measurements. So we backed the bathyscaph away from the ball and paid out the long umbilical cable to its full length. Now Hugh began his uh, careful calibration of the instrument and cautioned me against any possible movement that might bias his data. In fact, he said, don't even fart because we'll pick that up on the seismograph. It seemed like we spent a couple of hours on the seafloor. Once Hugh was satisfied with his uh, data indicated by the instruments inside the cabin, we surfaced and went back into San Diego. Mission accomplished. Ultimately, Project Vela decided not to deploy microseismographs on the seafloor. Instead, they would be placed in rock formations on land where they were easier to service and where the detection of underground tests was a bit more uh, precise. All the seafloor work was not lost, however, because much of the techniques and technologies used were later applied to conventional uh, seismic stations throughout the world to improve the quality of their work. And it was one of the more interesting dives I ever made with the Trieste in my three and a half years in the program. So with many thanks to Hugh Bradner for giving me that experience in marine geology. And that is the end of my sea story. Thanks for listening. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast, our geology special. We would love to hear from you, and we'd love actually your your tales from the high seas. If you've got any stories of adventure, if you work offshore, uh, or anything to do with the ocean, really, any interesting tales of adventure we're looking for, either email them in and we'll read them out ourselves, but feel free to record a little voice memo and send them in and we'll try and cut them in. We know what we've done. We've had some good adventures, uh, but we'd love to hear yours. So the email is podcast at armatasoceanic.com and I'll put that in the notes so you can find that there and we'll deep see you next time. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. As restrictions are lifted and international travel once again becomes possible, why not treat yourself to a holiday like no other? Visit a destination so exclusive it requires an enormous international conspiracy to keep it secret. Visit beautiful Atlantis. Walk along the promenade of high-resolution vessel tracks. 
visit one of the many enormous pyramids of poorly interpolated data. Atlantis, the magic eye picture of holiday destinations, where you're only limited by your imagination. <laughs>